as usual, we're just jumping right into this. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling Circular podcast. My name is Garp Hunnett. I'm founder of a company called Loop Layer, where we're focusing on building technology to help support the remanufacturing space and doing a little bit of consulting on the side, too, as we get to learn and grow in the industry of remanufacturing. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and former colleague, <laughs> Sabira. Go ahead, Sabira. Hi, everyone. I'm Sabira Lakani, uh, currently with Reapley as the Senior Director of Product Management. Been with Reapley for a couple of years, but I've always been in the circular economy space, really fresh out of college. So, um, yeah, excited to talk about, I hear, tax incentives. We're going full tax incentives on deconstruction this week. So all about deconstructing uh, very amounts, various amounts of structures but also the the disposition cycles that uh, of disposition being the technical term for donating and getting rid of things don't uh, all of the donating and, and disposition that goes on for what might be in those structures as well which is something Reapley knows uh very well in terms of the the business model as we helped them do that uh, our customers do that for a very long time and by structures you mean building structures physical Great residential yes. commercial you're where absolutely right where we go in our everyday places the, the structures that uh, as we are finding out do have various amounts of values because of what makes up those structures so ultimately the residential you might have a lot more of woods bricks various amounts of pipings uh the uh ceramics, everything that goes into that residential environment, as opposed to what might be more commercial, which might be more of the ceiling tiles, the ceiling tile framing, the ceiling framings, uh, the cement, the blocks, the, I'm trying to name all the things that we've carpet, seen. Carpet, glass. The carpet, of course, and glass. And metal. so all about extracting the value as much as you can of not demolishing those structures, but ultimately deconstructing it in a way where those materials can be salvaged. What is the difference between a demolition and a deconstruction, Sabira, when we're talking about material that can be saved? Why are we making that distinction? Yeah, I almost think like, you know, to kick that off, I would say like if you're outside, you know, on a walk listening to this, like just look around, you know, you're probably surrounded by buildings and think about like the future of the building that you're looking at or even the one that you're in, you know, fast forward 50 to 100 years. So the distinction I would make is demolition is imagine you got a wrecking ball that is really being swung at your building. Or even if you think of like the um, organized blow ups of buildings. Oh, where, the fun videos where they, yes, they, they destroy they floor by them. floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that <laughs> I'm thinking of that as demolition where there is no, the objective is to bring the structure down to zero as fast and efficiently as possible, but there is no objective of you reusing any of the stuff from that motion. A demolition. That, oh, sorry. Oh no, I think you're you're about to get to it, which is it's the timing, right? Yeah. Like, and that's yeah. so from a demolition standpoint, it's timing because time is money. Yeah, and effort, right? So and the effort. demolition. Yeah is more of a, uh, sorry, the deconstruction is more, let me think about what is in the structure. Let me think about what 
could be reused and then go uh, piece by piece and almost like harvest, right? It's like urban mining, harvesting yeah. what is the, the material in the building already and how could that be repurposed, reused in some future use? Doesn't have to necessarily be in a building, but the, the deconstruction is almost like Legos take it apart to reuse again. And something that you and I got to find out when we were working together at Reapley was really unpacking and understanding the value of appropriately deconstructing a structure. And what does that mean to do that on site when if you just demolish it and you boom, 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 boom it all into pieces, well, it's actually not worth anything when you're starting to sort through that rubble. Ultimately, that's just going to be bulldozed into a giant container shipped off to another giant container called a landfill. Um, you might get you might get some metals picked out of that, but ultimately it's going to go away. It's going to go into the ground. Yep. On the deconstruction front, we're, we're really seeing a lot of aggregation and sortation on site mm -hmm. of similar materials, finding the value in those materials, and then sending that to the appropriate area where those materials can be reused or purchased for reuse. Which is probably the effort to do that is at least double, right? When you compare demolition yeah. versus deconstruction. And so not only are we talking about time, but when we're thinking about that effort that you're talking about, Gar, it's systems really to do that sortation to do the aggregation, you need not only labor who understands what materials are like, what materials have value, how they could be reused, where there might be an end market for them, but also like, where do you do that? Where do you store these things? Uh, in, where, like safely, what building do you need to, to store them? Uh, where is that located geographically? Why is it there? Uh, and then like, how do you get a con consistent supply of source material so that, you know, the economics of whatever you're doing to deconstruct makes sense. I love that you took it that direction, mostly because that is the big question of why don't we deconstruct more? And ultimately, it comes down to the incentives for why we don't deconstruct more, the timing, and then that supply and demand is so key. So the planning to what we mentioned earlier, it does take more effort, it does take more effort to know how to take something apart, where it's going to go once it's taken apart. It's not all going to be put into a nice container and shipped off somewhere else. Um, the timing of it, it takes a little bit more effort and time to deconstruct something. It's going to be weeks, not a day to dem demolish something. So you're going to be taking something apart. Um, and the timing also then goes into, well, if it's residential, where am I living while that thing is being, uh, you know, taken down? There's a little more planning that then goes into that. Um, and then the supply and demand is really solving that that latency problem where you have the demand source that's eventually going to be the market searching for those materials. But how do you time them out right? I have this wood that I got from uh, this home that I deconstructed. Who's going to want it? So how do we set up the appropriate markets? How do we move that appropriately through logistics? And then what are you going to pay um, when it comes down to that, that source as well? Totally. And when I think about this world, I think I feel butterflies because there's a 
you almost the the level of trust needed for these types of materials especially if the next use is going to be in another building like you really need to be aware and have kind of full transparency of what you're purchasing when 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 those markets get created as a buyer if you're looking at purchasing wood you're looking at purchasing concrete or whatever you want to feel confident that what you're purchasing at scale is quality at scale and that you're paying the right price for whatever condition the the things you're purchasing or the items or materials you're purchasing are are correct or at least like what you thought they were and i think so the the element of the market yes definitely there and i think people and society probably share that butterfly feeling with me of like yeah is it really worth it to go figure all that out and why? And this is really what y'all are solving. Again, I say y'all and we somewhat <laughs> interchangeably here with Reapley, but it's what we were doing with both the work uh, of working internal to a client and helping scale reuse, but also now with the city marketplace stuff. And that's kind of a big component in this. Yeah, we are seeing that some cities are really interested in facilitating the markets that you're talking about, right? They know that if these building materials that are not being deconstructed, they're being demolished, and a lot of that material is going to landfill, they're really fast forwarding and thinking about, well, A, aren't we wasting all this material? It's just going to landfill. B, you know, the landfill itself is, you're gonna run out of space sooner than later. And see, isn't there the need for those materials already? Like, why are we doing raw material extraction when the source, you know, is really right around us? We've, we've right. harvested these materials already. So cities are an interesting place because uh, you can have the element of policy or facilitators to kind of help set up those systems that we were talking about. And I think this is... When I think of, again, you brought up the term urban mining, and that is so key to this, is who's going to find those treasures, that uh, that value locked away in the mine that is around us, all of the built environment. And what comes, I never knew this, and it's something that I, uh, I just love falling back on, which is wood, and the value of old wood. Old wood being the wood that's locked away in some of these residential structures that in which the tree that was felled in order to make some of that, that wood, that tree had been growing for more than 50 years. And I got to step back into almost the science of trees when thinking about this episode, because that, that old wood becomes that hard wood and starts mm. to have actually a higher property of value because of um, how, um, almost impermeable it is to being warped through water, infested with different bugs. Um, but then also over time, it just stands out as, as among a better option than the young timber, which then is being used often. As we start to go to these sustainable forests, these sustainable forests are using timber that's now being grown quite rapidly with breeds of trees that are being grown quite rapidly. And they just don't have the same density as the old wood so you're actually using a tree that's 10 to 20 years old and actually as i was looking and researching has uh nearly half the amount of rings 
that would be present in that wood. The rings being, again, a symbol of how long that tree was when it was growing, mm -hmm. but ultimately a symbol of the density of that wood, which I just, again, I always forget that that's why that old wood is so valuable and people want that old wood. I think, yeah. It's so when you're talking, I think about how the, the marginal or like almost continuous um, minimization of quality around us. Like we depend on, when you're talking about wood, to get what we have today, we've had to depend on nature and our own kind of human innovation to reconfigure natural materials to get us high quality things and, and materials. And I'm, I'd be curious that over time, the more that we harvest out of the earth and the more that we uh, try to, I guess, fill in, fill in the gaps, like the material gaps, right? By growing trees fast, as an example, if we're going to overall just be dealing with the leftovers, right? Of our own kind of lack of planning. And we're going to now have to be in a world where those 50 year old trees really don't exist or hundred year old trees don't exist. And that, that makes me a little bit sad. Uh, I think the beauty of the circular economy is modeling off of the way that nature works, but inherently, you know, if we take everything out of nature and we don't, we don't invest in it properly again, then we're not going to get those 50 year trees yes. in the future. Yes. The that ultimately brings us then to why should we start deconstructing more? How do we start to encourage this? And one of the big indicating factors is, well, we need probably to continue to support the tax incentives around providing value for deconstructed materials. And when we start deconstructing more, we're going to get those valuable materials. We're going to start decreasing the amount of new materials we're extracting from our actual environment. But the other part of this, too, that I love is the amount of labor involved in deconstruction. And that's a huge component to any of the cities that we might be working with, where it requires a certain amount of upskilling and also increasing job training. And it takes more jobs to deconstruct something than it does to demolish something. It probably takes uh, only a handful of people to bring something down using some 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 dynamite or even just a wrecking ball. <laughs> But it does take a, a considerable amount of more talent to deconstruct something, which is beneficial to communities and, and ultimately gives more people more purpose, um, sort of rounding out all of the value that this can bring towards deconstruction. I do think that's really exciting. Um, when I worked in, in India and we were formalizing um, waste management services that we offer to our customers, that was the same pitch is that. You can either throw things in the landfill or you could provide jobs to people who are really on the fringes of society and uh, give them an opportunity for regular safe work that benefits the environment, that requires skills. And uh, I think that opportunity for us is, is huge in the world of deconstruction to people who are thinking about the economics of it, yes, it is going to be more expensive. It's the same thing what happened um, while I was selling these services in India. But if you think about the potential economic and environmental benefits of taking this approach, and if you plan ahead well, you could maximize that. If we kind of try to do it last minute, 
or think of it as, as an afterthought. No, it's not going to go well. But if you, if you almost plan ahead in the design phase of the building that I'm going to deconstruct, like that's the ideal golden state. Right now we're dealing with, we built a bunch of buildings that we didn't think about how we would deconstruct. So now we have to figure out how to like get the most out of it. Um, but if we still plan ahead for that, we can maximize those economic and environmental benefits. So as it comes down to planning and then the tax incentives and the, ultimately the value created and the value given back to someone who's choosing to deconstruct, that's where we get to turn to Jessica Marshall, uh, again, president and CEO of Property Appraisal Group and the Green Mission, who's going to now, while we might have some amount of expertise in the markets a little bit and then building a product to help support really the markets and the deconstruction She's going to be our guide to this week on the tax incentives and the value that's created uh, that she's seen for her clients and that ultimately we get to now disseminate as a message out to everyone listening as, hey, maybe you should be talking more about this with your neighbors or even any deconstruction you might have in your own life. Uh, any closing thoughts here, Sabira? Well, I'm really excited to meet her. And I think that as you know, a millennial who has not a purchased a home yet and looking to... I think this is something top of mind for me is that the home that I'm buying, like what history does it have? How much will I change its history? And in the future, you know, if I want to really expand or change, like what will that mean for me? Not only from like the interiors and like the built environment that I want to design for myself, but what does it mean for me to be like a responsible steward of the materials that house me? And I'm, yeah. I'm excited to learn more from from her how to connect the dots between where we live, how we live our lives, and then what that means for circular economy. I love it. Enjoy the interview right now. Hey, everybody, just a quick editing note. Sabir was not able to join us for the interview. So for anybody listening, I'm just not talking over her. For anybody viewing, don't worry, I didn't hit X. She just wasn't able to join us due to a prior scheduling sporting event. Maybe we can talk about it in the future. The interview is great with Jessica. We dive into the intricacies of tax appraisals, depreciation, and how the IRS views donations for uh, any types of deconstructed materials. It's great. There's a lot to learn. It's very deep. It's very heavy. But ultimately, please reach out to me or you can reach out to Jessica on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to connect you to an email too if, if we are able to connect. And, and please reach out to me. Enjoy the interview now. Do you have any questions about the format, the structure, anything that no. I, I could make clearer? No, and I love it because usually when I'm giving these presentations, it's with PowerPoint slides to CPAs and it's very rigorous and very formal, which pull me back when I start going down that route. But I, I love being able to informally talk about potential tax deductions for climate action. It's, it's exciting. This is as exciting as a life of a 47-year-old CPA becomes. So thank you. <laughs> of course. And I think to, to that end, I want to dive into, I could not find really, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Where did this all start in terms of this deconstruction tax donation perspective that has this environmental spin from an IRS perspective? If there's one yeah. from an environmental perspective or just in general, yeah. where, do, where did we find this starting to really take hold? Yeah, well, uh, we can start in the 1800s when horses began going up to auction, but let's jump forward. Jump to forward. What we're looking at are is no different than when you're donating art, 
collectibles. We are looking at non-cash charitable contributions, personal property. So we yes. are looking at donating personal property and the treatment by the IRS is not different at all from that of fine art and from the collectibles. And if you look at the tax form 8283, where we substantiate these donations for individuals and corporations, there's a bunch of boxes at the bottom of page one. And there's art, collectibles, um, you know, other real estate. And then there's a box K, which is other. And 99% hmm. of these deconstruction donations for building materials, appliances, fixtures, lighting are coming under other. So hmm. this has been an accidental environmental tax policy, where in the early 2000s, building up to 2010, it became discovered that deconstructing buildings and donating those materials to a charity or to a governmental organization afforded the taxpayer the same type of deduction as if they donated their Picasso ceramic owl jug. So... Huh. That's where it came in. There was never there was never a push by the IRS for this to become environmental policy. It's been accidental environmental policy. What we saw in the beginning of the 2000s are where deconstruction really started getting pushed. Moving into 2010, um, it increased. But what happened was it was a fairly insular economy with only a few big players, only a few appraisers, only a few people doing this and where we are now in 2023 is the very beginning of the curve because hmm. until we have deconstruction contractors bidding on each of these jobs until we have every taxpayer understanding where they can potentially take these donations couple that with local tax policy the sticks deconstruction ordinance the carrot which is the tax deduction these all have to work in tandem, and we are just at the beginning of having this fully understood to move on towards full acceptance and understanding of this tax deduction. So I, I love that perspective. Paint us a picture of how then this has grown in the industry then with yeah. maybe some relatively few players uh, helping both residential and commercial entities benefit from this opportunity. Yeah. How have we seen that really increase in that maybe that leading up to 2000s, 2010 type of, of timeline? So what we're seeing now is where I'm located on the East Coast is a desert of deconstruction contractors. We have some big players up in the Northeast who are amazing. Eric Kruger, Deconstruction Works, Eco Building Bargains, although they don't have a deconstruction team, Second Chance, Sustainable Warehouse, Reuse, Savannah. But if you look at those places that I just mentioned along the East Coast, they're far and they are their, their schedules are packed into the rest of next year. So what we find is that we don't, we have a huge demand for deconstruction on the East Coast, which I can get into why the demand is there because of the tax deduction and the effective yeah. tax rates, but we have a shortage. Um, whereas in the upper Midwest, um, I'm a board member on uh, Rethos, great organization. But hmm. when we're quoting jobs in that Chicago, Illinois, Wisconsin, Detroit area, we're having multiple deconstruction contractors send us to quote the same job 
which means they're competing against each other, which means that we're moving towards a healthy market of deconstruction contractors. Hmm. We're seeing some of the same in California. Um, it's building in the Denver Boulder area. Remember, Denver has the Stop Waste Initiative. Boulder has the Deconstruction Initiative. Um, but the Upper Midwest is just the shining example of of collective work in action, coupled with you know we lived in Wisconsin for fifteen years, so I'm a little biased, but the nicest people in the world live in the Upper Midwest, um, and so it's created this ecosystem that is benefiting the deconstruction contractors because oh. these these engagements by definition with deconstruction contractors cost more than demolition. Because you think about yeah. if we're looking at a four floor office complex or a single family home, 2,500 square feet, you call demo in there. What demo is being paid to do is knock it down and get it into the smallest pieces possible to fit tightly in that dumpster to lower right. the tipping fees. Right. Deconstruction, careful undoing. It takes a little bit more time. You're salvaging, denailing on site. You know, Dave Benning can talk about this much more fluently than I can. Uh, but classic that's voice where, in the space. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, oh, he's a, he's the leader. And you talk about the leader. Dave Benning gets all the credit, in my opinion. I've studied this model for yes. the past two decades. <laughs> Props to Dave. There's others out there, but he's really uh, he's blown it out of the water. But you've got you've got to have a healthy ecosystem where this becomes the go to, and that people understand the tax deduction part because deconstruction costs more. So how do you yes. bridge that gap? Talk more about then. I love that you sort of brought up or hinted at a little bit of a social difference in maybe a Midwest ideology. I'm not going to say there's a difference between an ideology and, and living style between that and the Northeast, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why maybe you think that this is being more or finding some success in the Midwest. And then I'd love for you to double down on that. Uh, that note that you had where you said that the Northeast has some complicating factors to it, um, but also some successful factors in it as well. Yeah. What automatically came to me was thinking that the housing stock in the Northeast is older and that might add some value or also create some complications. Am I too far off on that? No, you're correct. You're absolutely correct. The, um, the, the extracted materials from a northeastern colonial structure from the 1900s extracts vintage or antique lumber, which is off the chart as far as a value driver for a donation. Um, that's really where we're seeing the value along with um, on the East Coast as well, which I'll get into in a minute. You also have people moving into a structure that may have a sub-zero Viking range wolf oven that are oh. three years old. The new owner wants to redo everything to themselves to their specifications. Those are highly valuable appliances that were planned on going to the dumpster. Um, so you see a high dollar value there. Um, you see some of that in the upper Midwest, but not as extravagant as you see on the coast, number one. But here's the problem with the, the Northeast and what I see in general in the big cities. We go into Manhattan in some of these projects where demolition is coming on Monday. We're called in as an afterthought to do a valuation estimate for what the donated fair market value is of all of these materials. All of this, there was an example in a New York City building that had um, original uh, pine that had been hauled up to New York from either Georgia or Alabama 
in the late 1600s, which I don't even know how that would have happened, how it got up there, but it was coming down. Expense. It was coming down slated for the dumpster. We got called in with 24 hours notice. So you've got to get in there. You've got to do our, our, our COO's construction management background. He's looking at the schematics. We're extracting the type of lumber, the value. We get that to the owner of the materials who's accomplished the long-term capital gain holding period. I'm going down digging, but critical, which keep, anyone- <laughs> Keep digging. We're getting deeper into this topic. Yeah. Here we go. You've got to own these materials and you've got to accomplish the long-term capital gain holding period of 365 days in order to be able to take the donation value at fair market huh. value. Otherwise, you're limited to basis. Explain um, that a little bit further then. Is okay. what you're saying is in order to, you need, you must have fully, I'm out of my depth on some of this language, but you needed to realize some of the value or no, you need to realize the maximum out of that value over that year long period before then that could have possibly be ever considered a deduction. So the IRS has two types of taxation. We have ordinary yes. income, capital gain. Capital gain taxation, there's long-term, short-term. Short-term capital it. gains are just ordinary income under the same you know, rates that we have right now under the TCJA. Once you have that long-term capital gain holding period and you donate to charity, you are able to take the fair market value. So some mm. of these, these um, donations, they may be inherited structures. They may be something where... Um, where people determining you know, their original basis is difficult. The fair market value, which still has to be determined. Don't, <laughs> don't forget that on Form 8283. You know, Lauby v. Commissioner Tax Court disallows on a technicality. Critically important. But once you've held through the 365 days, you donate at the fair market value. Same with painting. Same with, uh, same with uh, collectibles. But here's another hitch. If you look, the IRS determines if someone is a, a dealer or an investor. Mm. The simplest explanation of this is a dealer is a house flipper. They purchase properties with the intent to flip and make money on the new sale of the property. An investor is someone who purchases a property with the intent for the profit marker to come from the appreciation in value. Dealers are precluded from capital gain treatment. So if That's you're doing because the, they didn't hold on to the asset long enough. Oh, no, they can hold on to it. They can hold on to it long enough. They are uh, considered they, there's an, they they can. But if the yeah. IRS considers you a dealer and you're doing a Schedule C, let's say for one of my tax clients who's a dealer, when they sell those homes that are in their inventory that they fixed up and flipped, the straddle in that acquisition price and the sales price is cat is taxed at ordinary income tax rates. They don't get that, you know, 15% if their AGI is under a million dollars. It's taxed as ordinary income because the IRS considers what they do as dealers of the property. They're precluded from long-term capital gain treatment ever in huh. any sort of taxes on the Schedule C and the Schedule E with their business. That also precludes them from donating for fair market value. So sometimes, and this is very problematic because we have a lot yeah. of uh, potential clients who are dealers. They're 
tearing down a house, putting something up to sell, they can't donate those materials at fair market value. So they're so precluded. So it's not worth it. Yeah. 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 There's nothing. There's yeah. They've, they're limited to the basis well, that, number one, and it doesn't make sense. So the tax code, we have to work with what we've been given by the IRS. You also have to be very aware. We see a lot of people who have been audited and then come to our firm for consulting. They were dealers. They knew they were dealers but they had no idea that they were precluded from donating at fair market value. So it's just, you've got to understand this massive beast of the tax code that we have, how it can work for deconstruction, and then where the limitations are. Because do we want those dealers to be donating those building materials in that sub-zero, you know, all refrigerator that still has a value of eight grand? Yes. Is there motivation in the tax code right now? No. So what can we do? at the county level, at the city level, state level, deconstruction ordinance, or what can, I know this is wishing upon a star, if Congress were to become functional, if we could move these deductions away from being non-cash like art and collectibles, if they could become credits, that oh. number one, we could, that would be my, my, my dying wish really will be, I'll the file my last yes. tax return and then I'll say, did these become credits? Because <laughs> as we can talk about later, um, this is all based, the value of the donation for what you donate, as long as you have hit the long-term capital gain holding period and you're not a dealer, it's entirely dependent on what your effective tax rate is. And if your state has allows for non-cash, if we move this to a credit, it could be equitable. We could still have an appraised value to work off of. So there's still value in higher, higher valued materials, but it could be a credit that anyone could take dependent, not dependent on their effective tax rate, make it refundable. We've all of a sudden reached an entirely different socioeconomic community who have motivation to donate where there is no motivation now if you don't one itemize deductions and then two have an effective tax rate so like i i think i had told you this looking at a client in new york city who maxes out 10 percent of income in new york they got a they have a 35 percent effective tax rate if they have 45 percent effective tax rate 45 cents of every dollar they donate in building materials comes back to their pocket that donor in missouri who has four children, AGI of 70 grand, great living, they actually don't even pay federal taxes because of the child tax credit at 2K each. And the standard deduction, which was increased under the TCJA, which has been disastrous for charities. So the guy in, in, and his spouse in Missouri have no motivation to donate and do deconstruction because there's no extra bump there in the tax deduction. Whereas... Hmm. The person in New York, 45 cents on the dollar, you'd be nuts not to donate. Yeah. I'm going to recap this because this is, that was incredible, I think, in terms of explaining both the detail and the personal relevance, I think, to two different demographics. What I'm getting out of that is, one, um, somewhat topical, we, we might be dealing with, um, I, I'd be curious your take on this headline of, private equity funds investing in uh, rental locations that they can now own blocks of properties and start to rent out those properties and gain significant returns back over time. Um, but 
there might be, and I, I, if I'm getting this wrong, I'm kind of curious, they might be considered a dealer and so therefore have very little incentive or no incentive at all financially to when they purchase those blocks of properties to actually go in and say, hey, we're going to work with an organization that can help us actually deconstruct, pull this out, donate the appropriate materials because they can't get the tax deduction. They would then also then, therefore, the timelines would probably wouldn't be working in their benefit. They want these properties to flip. So therefore, by giving them the incentive, we would then increase the amount of materials that might flow towards donation, might to flow towards reuse. Um, but an entity like that wouldn't qualify. Am I correct? Not only that, let me add a little bit more water to the fire. Please. That is um, depreciation. When yeah. you're looking at business held, um, those improvements that they're making to those units, they're depreciating. If it's an improvement over 27 and a half years, um, so you're limited to the basis when you donate. So if you've, all, especially offices, we see this all the time, hotels that would like to donate, like new, right. everything's depreciated. If you have no basis, you have no value to donate even if you overcome the dealer versus investor. So there's a reason that 95% of my time at the appraisal companies is spent in residential hmm. because these you've got people who own a home. They're not depreciating because it's not a rental unit. They own it outright. They itemize deductions or they do with the, the tax deduction for deconstructed materials. But we're coming, we hit so many brick walls when it comes to corporate donations of materials because everything's depreciated or they're a dealer. And then you, and the other thing that I want to circle back to that New York city example, when we got called in to extract that lumber, that was just like antique lumber gold demo was coming on Monday. They had already contracted to be out within the next two weeks. Time is money. Occupancy starts. They've got major revenue. The owner of that building has major loss of revenue in occupancy if deconstruction comes in and takes an extra week. Even right. if the decon crews, even if Dave Benning, you know, clones himself and oversees all of these and can just extend the the, the time by a week, even if that happens, it's still um, the loss of occupancy. So that's where those corporate donations were threading a needle. It's usually someone who's only owned the property for a few years. They're not a dealer. Things still have basis to donate. And they end up extracting things like the heart pine of the late 1700s that the species was documented to have come from uh, colonial Alabama and Georgia areas. But this is, I'm describing a unicorn here because for that project that worked, I've got at least 20 that come through where, nope, it's going to hold up demolition. We have tenants coming. We're not going to deal with this. We're not. And that's where we see the equivalent of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of perfectly usable office equipment, electronics, computers that are still wrapped in there that just were never used. It's easier for them to dump them rather than wait for us to come in and, and contact local schools, find recipient organizations who can take these things, shelters for the unhoused. Um, we have to have more than just this tax deduction for corporate donors. And that's what you and I have talked about a lot 
about uh, what we need to tackle as the next frontier. I feel like residential, we're getting there. I hate that it's a tax deduction. I would, would like I said, I wish it was a credit. I wish it was equitable. But corporate waste and what we're seeing there, to me, is the is the greatest red alert. What can we do here? We've got to have, and we have to do this through the tax code. You know, I scoured the IRA when it, the, the infrastructure, the um, act that came out of Congress. I scoured that act. What do we have in here for the environmental corporate bump ups? We don't have the credits there that could capture what value those materials could bring to people in this country who, I mean, you look at our, our socioeconomic uh, divide. This is just. You know, this would just be such an obvious uh, source of potential assets to those who need them. It just takes yeah. planning and then it takes yep. the stick because me with the carrot, I just don't, the carrot's not big enough right now through the IRC. Uh, could you explain to me, um, depreciation has always been a, a, a fuzzy understanding of, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of value um, when something is depreciated off the books, but is still very much usable. And I'm even speaking maybe too uh, colloquially. I, I, you know, this is where explain to me how something that is of value can be used, can be seen as a, as a zero um, on some yeah. sort of, some sort of ledger. So back to my teaching of the accounting 101 yeah. course, which I, yeah, this is please. one of the basic yes. things I love hitting with <laughs> because these are, this is the first question that setting the foundation for taxes, depreciation is purely a tax concept. Yes. All depreciation is, is a tax concept. Let's say there was a work vehicle I bought, which was, it's a magnificent vehicle, by the way, it's a charger with a Hemi engine, which at midlife crisis, you really need to be driving a V8. So I got so you that can really thing for feel 30... it. Oh, it's amazing. When I pass yeah. people, you know, they, they understand yeah. they've been passed. But <laughs> I bought that vehicle for $30,000. Um, 2018, amazing deal. Highly, you know, great car. Anyway, I put it on my balance sheet for taxes, and I took something called bonus depreciation, which was upped with the TCJA. My depreciation on the vehicle in year one was, was around $28,000. So is that vehicle really only worth $2,000? No, it's just a tax treatment where I was able to cut down my taxable income by $28,000. Now, when I go to sell this magnificent vehicle that I have now driven up to 100,000 miles, um, I'm, they, they say I'll get $12,000 for it. When I make that transaction for $12,000 and I'm looking at my books, that difference between the book value, which is 2000 and the 12,000 is my straddle and taxable gain. So I'm paying taxes on 10 grand. So depreciation is a gift from the IRS that allows us to artificially lower our taxable income. But then you get it, you get hit on the back end because with every gift from the IRS comes a catch. And the catch is that you eventually have to pay taxes on a larger difference between the basis and between the value. And now in real estate, where this is critical, you put a rental on the books. And yeah, and depreciation um, is by statute. So for a residential rental, you have to depreciate 27 and a half years. It's, that's just what it is by statute. So I have some clients 
that, you know, you just think, bless their hearts. They buy $5 million in real estate and then command me to depreciate it over five years, which I say I am not the CPA for you because that's that's irregular taxation or fraud. Um, you have to depreciate over 27 and a half years. So when you go to sell that real estate five years in and this million dollar property, let's say you have that, that combined depreciation. I don't have my calculator, but let's just for, for ease, let's just say that there's $20,000 in depreciation. You go to sell that rental unit. There's something called the Section 1250 depreciation recapture. That portion of depreciation is taxed at 25% by statute. So the IRS gets you back for that gift because that rental didn't actually depreciate. It actually increased in value for any good investment property. Mm, right, um, yep. Unless, you know, I, I don't know. I had someone that wanted to invest in the swampland in Florida that they got for a steal. I'm like, well, you'll sell it for a steal as well because it's not appreciating. So when that property appreciates, the basis is reduced by the depreciation. You're paying the long-term capital gains on the full straddle, but pulling out that depreciation recapture of 25%. The rest comes through at capital gains rate, which right now are 0, 15, 20, 15% all the way up to the million dollar level. But just to add some excitement and intrigue to any audience who could possibly find this exciting is that the TCJA sunsets in 2025, the tax code that we're under right now, we have potentially the lowest tax brackets and the widest, the lowest tax percentages and the widest brackets that you or I, especially you, you're much younger than me, you will never see these tax rates again, hmm. ever. So 2025 and the tax code is um, estimated to have cost $4 trillion in lost revenue for the IRS, coupled with them only collecting two-thirds of what they had planned. It's the country's broke, $10 trillion in COVID spending. So in 2025, this tax code expires. What this means is critical for everyone because people may want to tune out tax. They may not want to understand the things that I'm saying. But when there's policy that affects your household and your business and really runs a, a huge amount of our decision making, it's, it's best to take note. In 2025, these rates go up. We are going to have narrower brackets. And that standard deduction that a lot of people have seen now, it's crazily high you know, for married yeah. uh, spouses. That has precluded a lot of people from itemizing deductions because unless you have, and then here's another issue with their state and local taxes, a line item on the Schedule A has been capped at 10 grand. My clients who are on the coast may pay 40 grand in state taxes. They can only deduct 10,000 for itemized deductions. Then you're left with mortgage interest. What is that magical category at the bottom of the Schedule A? Charitable contributions. Charitable contributions are worth more when your tax rate is higher. So what do we expect in 2025? Me as a CPA, working with other CPAs, I am telling people, you're thinking about deconstruction. You do that in 2025, instead of being 25 cents on the dollar, it may be worth 32 cents on the dollar. Charities, mm. you plan on donating, doing a huge investment to a public university. You know, I hate to, sorry to the university, but make that donation in 2025 when it's worth more. Um, mm. So huge, huge changes coming in the tax code. What it means for deconstruction is using this as a carrot, it's worth more. 
and having that lower standard deduction where we can bring more people into itemizing. Let's say they have a manageable mortgage that is nine grand. They're capped at 10 grand state and local. They only are at $19,000 for itemized deductions under the, the current, let's say it's a two spouse home. Under the current tax law, they're not even close to that 2526 um, standard deduction. Lower that back down. All of a sudden, charitable donations are on the table for a huge segment of the population that have not been writing the checks as regularly because they can't take the deduction under the current tax code. I love all of that. Explain to me how that's relevant to the 10 beams that I have supporting my house that are from the 1700s. I'm based in the Northeast. I'm still lost on what that value means. What, where is that value captured and then depreciated when is it because no other owner would have taken would have realized that in the 300 years of that of the existence of this house um is that really where it is is once you take those out and you you're making that real and donating it is that where that value comes from yes okay, okay. so you stumbled it. upon another very important principle of accounting the Excellent. detachment and the attachment principle when you have Excellent. real estate You've got the land and then you have the improvements attached to the land. So when you install a dishwasher, it becomes attached under the attachment principle. It magically, the second you install it, goes from being personal property to real. The detachment principle is when you extract real estate uh, improvements, hmm. they become personal property. So those are the occasions where you might have a barn that looks like it's falling down, but oh, lo <laughs> right. and behold, there's no um, rot. There's no termite damage. These beautiful extracted beams from whatever, you know, 1870s in Wisconsin, those have value on the antique lumber market, especially as all the people in the, this is why I get so excited about Reapley and about what you're doing. I'm examining the market that you are all creating. I'm not creating that market. I'm investigating and reporting upon right. that market. We have to have these goods. Um, right now, what I believe is my appraised values, which are tethered to actual asset sales, are probably much lower than they should be. But I don't have any data that shows any higher asset sales because the market is so fragmented. And you think about it, if you want to renovate your kitchen and you tell your contractor, I want it uh, made completely of sustainable, reclaimed lumber. Okay, so then I'm in D.C. I go over to Community Forklift. Great organization. I go over to Second Chance, and then I hit two. Okay, they've got about two-thirds of what I need. Okay, let's see. I'll, I'll shoot on up to Princeton Reuse. Then I'll go drive to Springfield, Massachusetts. I've got all my materials now. That's easy, right? And Super then easy. it's not because you go to Home Depot, you click fill, they deliver it to you three days later. Even though that porcelain Kohler sink that is in a blush pink that appraises amazingly well and is coming back into style, they've got that at Eco Building Bargains. But can I get there? 
and can I get the shipping? So we have to holistically build this market where the demand, the demand is going to be there. We've got, especially the younger generation, people your age, we have beyond just the financial interest of the old people like me. You have environmental movements. You have yeah. people acknowledging the climate change. Um, set up the market. It's, bring the market to them and you you'll be able to close and have these these loops and you know, I'm still my gosh I'm stealing from your name but you have the potential to have an Amazon or a Home Depot low style marketplace where you can procure the volume quantity and quality of materials that you need then me as an appraiser and as a CPA I'll look at that market and I'm going to see the prices come up because what we're seeing right now is a lot of niche projects or a lot of, you know, Second Chance in Baltimore has a huge organization, huge area with warehousing. They can fulfill some residential, but when I've spoken with their executive director, they're still short of being able to procure and right. give enough lumber for a large commercial job. So I'll keep examining this market. I try to get my appraisals out to anyone who can see them when, when clients sign up. I have them um, waive their right to the privacy of the report so it can be shared with the deconstruction mm. contractors and nonprofits. 99% of clients don't care. Like, I don't care. Yeah. You can share the value of my toilet. It was a toto. It was great. It was 225 bucks. Tell them. But then you can see that. And I see some nonprofits that, uh, you know, are raising their prices to say, oh, we can, we can move up. Let's, let's set the market price higher. Here's another thing that, that again... I may be going down. You may have to pull me back up. Think about the tax deduction. How do you get the tax deduction to be legitimate? You have to donate to a nonprofit or a governmental entity. Nonprofit reuse retailers, are they the most efficient market participants? I don't know, but that's what I'm looking at now. Some yeah. are. Some, some aren't. Are, some aren't, yeah. And, and, when and I go, maybe what I would love to say in that is kind of to your point earlier of it depends on how much market access they even have in sort of yeah. getting uh, all of the items they might be aggregating, getting that yeah. to as many market participants as possible to get the most somewhat fair market value for an item. And it's almost almost fair market depending on how many how fast you might move that item, how many people wanted that item, and maybe there's a bidding process. And so it just needs more eyes, more wallets um, uh, to be able to access those those items. It does. And this is a, another part of the tax code. I, there's an article of it on it, my website, but there's a provision of Section 170, which is the, where the non-cash contributions. Corporations can, we call it the inventory dump. It's really not that. It's They can offload their inventory at cost and a half under a very specific provision of 170. So hmm. what we found is very high-end plumbing manufacturers will do an inventory dump in rural New Mexico, where all of a sudden a nonprofit has access to 500 soaking tubs. And then you look at people in that area who are coming out of being unhoused, the people the nonprofit uh, meets the needs of, they don't need a soaking tub. They need a nice rain shower. Uh, shower head is great. They're going to have stall showers. They need smaller vanities. So you have these inventory dumps where, and they have to go to nonprofits. So we have a bottleneck with a lot of nonprofits where there's a lot of inventory that could be going for higher prices if we had an economy that 
you know, we've got a lot of um, fragmented players. You know Larry, Lamont, Recapture It. Amazing concept. What he's doing there, what you have with Reaply, it has to be interconnected. Everyone wins. The price yes. points will go higher. We'll cut into the market share of new materials. We'll cut production of new materials once we establish this market, have the supply of the quantity of the quality that people want. This market will emerge. My valuations will go up because there will be higher price points. There'll be yes. less of this liquidation sale, orderly or force liquidation. That just is killing, killing the values to these nonprofits. So this will take, this will take many years. I'm thinking 2033, I want to be back here with you where we have potentially solved this, this, and this. Here's valuations. Oh, look, we're seeing adequate lumber through here, through here, plumbing fixtures, coating. There's engineers who have done amazing testing so outside of my specialty. I just read it for my reports, but the density of certain lumber that can be reused up to code without right. question, without, without all of these hoops to jump through because the tree is 200 years old. That's why yep. it can be used. <laughs> that's, that's how I see it as a CPA. I don't understand their war scale and their hardness and density, but I do see that the numbers make sense. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And it, at least, you know, I, I almost the leading indicator can be wood in that way. Right. I mean, yeah. that's clearly the market that, that gains traction and that's probably comes from the value, the actual value of the density of the wood, but that then the contractors are the ones seeking that wood out and the mm -hmm. market is the, the, is responding and trying to vacuum up all of that value because clients see and they almost like it aesthetically so i don't know how much we can track the value of the aesthetics but it then has that that marketable value to the clients because then if it's actually functional so ultimately we can see that leading indicator and hopefully that will then mean more soaking tubs will find their market home or that will yes. mean those those pink porcelain uh i think you're right those pink porcelain basin uh type of faucets uh or basins for the faucet will will also find those markets and i you know part of me i grew up with i grew up with a mother who was always taking me to these these uh these storefronts these reuse centers and it was always the bargain part yeah. of me hopes that Yes, I wish it could still be the bargain, but I think you're right. We're going to be getting into an era where that's no longer going to be the place where you go find that bargain. You're going to go find that heritage and that value, and you're going to go find that lovely piece that's going to solve that environmental factor for you, maybe not that economic factor as much, but hopefully that's going to lead to a less extractive economy. Exactly. You know, we're, I'm actually in Boston now, and so I, my, dropping my daughter off to college. Um, last year, she needed sofas. And I said, we are so hitting the thrift stores in Boston area. Yes, High yes. income, you know, people are transient. We ended up with two sofas that appraise used for about $14,000. Designer, they held up with all those kids. I mean, they trashed them, but they were <laughs> so high quality with the box springs inside there. Heavier as all get out. But they, they handled kids jumping on them, sleeping on them, food, as opposed to, and I got the two sofas for $200. As opposed to Ikea would have been $200 a sofa, and that is just disposable cardboard. Yes. You're just getting rid yes. of it. These these sofas are indestructible. But why are those sofas $200? Why can these not, Why? which is great. Don't I'm glad they're $200. Otherwise, I would That's not have bought $400. That's the hard part, right? We bought the bargain, um, but ultimately, uh, oh, I it, why? It. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, yeah, and it's the same with fashion. The fast fashion. Yes. My, yes. I have five kids. The youngest likes this crazy store called Sheen. It's just disposable clothing. Whereas we go to the vintage, and I say, it might as well evaporate. It yeah. might as well evaporate yep. off your body. Yep. <laughs> yep. Pull on the seams. Look at how this is made. This will last. So every, I mean, this we're looking at the building materials, you and I, but it's an entire paradigm shift that we will have to get and get buy-in from places like that Forever 21, which just did a merge with Sheen. I just read about. Bring in Reclaimed. Why not? If you can sell it for even higher, you've got that mark vintage, use that appeal. There's so many ways that so many people can make more money off of this, that it's it's not, uh, you know, we're not all going to have to hunker down and, you know, and, and cut our margins. There's a huge market for this. Let's just yes. step into it. Yes. Um, help me understand in terms of back to almost the, the history of where how this is being developed in our economy, how more people are taking advantage of this, how this is a, a growing option. We, we can move on to another question if you, if, if you don't want to answer this one, but tell me about the bad actors in this space, though, that could do harm to more IRS acceptance um, by overinflating assets um, or do harm in general by uh, putting people potentially in fraud's harmful way. Um, what what would you say about that? What what has been your experience in seeing that in the industry? So here's a real life example. This happened over the past four months. We usually get pulled into this when CPAs start researching how could a pile of sticks actually be worth you know a hundred thousand dollars. Reached right. by a CPA, won't name the state or the nonprofit. Their client had procured an appraisal of a deconstructed property. The appraiser. And the nonprofit both signed Form 8283, put in a value, and told the client that was all they needed. The CPA said, you need a qualified appraisal. Buy a qualified appraiser. Where's the appraisal? He asked the, the client. He asked the nonprofit. You don't need an appraisal. You don't need an actual appraisal if it's under valued under $500,000. False. You always need an appraisal. You just don't have to attach the appraisal to your 1040 or 1120 if it's under 500K. But word uh, to the, the wise, always attach the appraisal. IRS agents can look right to the appraisal, substantiate the value. But I digress. Going back to that, they reached out to me and they again held feet to the fire. This is a nonprofit. And mind you, this is in at the end of March, which if you think of the calendar and what I'm doing at that time of year, I've got you know, four companies that run on the tax year. And this appraiser, they had to locate the appraiser who was on vacation during tax season. They found them, and the appraiser turned in a five-page report that substantiated a value, let's just say, for example, that was $125,000. There were no comparable sales. All of the requirements for the report that are in the appraisal organizations that sponsor the appraisal foundation, congressionally directed, the ASA, AAA, ISA, they were missing 75 to 90% of all the components in the appraisal report. They weren't even going to produce a report, which essentially means that that appraiser and the nonprofit were able to charge the same amount that we did for an appraisal, which is about a thousand bucks, and not even produce a product. So they had us do it, and I tracked staff hours to document how long it would take to do a real appraisal of the home. It took one month of staff hours 
at $1,000. So if you do the math, my profit margin for the Green Mission is not great. It's not a money-making organization. That appraiser in under five minutes probably threw together that report and signed the 8283. And then when we redid the report using the correct methodology, it was still a very high donation. I think it was worth 50 or 60 grand. It wasn't worth 125 grand. The nonprofit then would not sign the 8283 because we had produced the appraisal and said, nope, I, you can, I will only sign if you use my appraiser who had proven through the CV and through the report to produce an unqualified report, at which point the CPA was at a standstill. Um, different story, but similar, uh, a nonprofit procures appraisers and the appraisers have to pay the nonprofit a fee for every appraisal the nonprofit throws their way. It's, you can't do that. I mean, just the IRC. You have to be an independent appraiser. You can't pay finder's fees to a nonprofit because that precludes our independence. And the appraisals that we redo, this is not rocket science. I do business valuations where I am valuing complex, intangible assets like goodwill. We're valuing highly fungible materials like toilets. It's not rocket science, but it takes time and it takes education. And I've been doing this for four years. I'm here are the standards. You must have the standards. Where are your publications? Where, how, where are you talking about this? If you don't get it by now, just leave the industry because if you're doing the appraisal in five minutes and charging a thousand bucks, look at the margins. It's highly lucrative if you don't do these the right way. Right. But why do we do them the right way? Because we want the IRS to accept them. We want these to be um, to these to be sound, and we don't want there's two tax court precedent setting cases that involve deconstruction that have already put a black eye on the industry. We're dealing with all of these audits. We're dealing with all of these issues. Um, you know, I, I just heard of another person leaving the market as a deconstruction appraiser. Um, but what I'm doing is training appraisers from other industries, including business valuation. Because hmm. when I talk to business valuators, they're saying, oh, we're just, it's like we're valuing commodities. I said, yeah, it's very similar, but it's a lot easier. So I'm building up a lot of other appraisers from those organizations and helping them to add a deconstruction um, arm to their business. Because Excellent. I don't have the time to do every deconstruction appraisal in the country, nor do I want to. We need to have a healthy market. I want to say like the CPAs, but 75% of us are uh, retiring in the next 10 years. So there's a huge shortage of CPAs. We don't want to like that. We just have to have a healthy market where people know what the heck they're doing and just cut out this nonsense. And that nonprofit, like, who are you helping there? It's right. just, like, it's ridiculous. Yep. It's ridiculous. Yeah. If, as we, as we wrap up here, you've already mentioned if you had some sort of dying wish or magic wand, you would, uh, and again, I'm going to butcher the, the exact statement, you would change it from being uh, some sort of something to a credit. What was I missing in uh, the, the, the refund to a credit or yes. what? Yes. Dying, dying wish is it goes from being a non-cash monetary charitable contribution tax deduction from the Schedule A, that's concise, isn't it? I'd rather have it be <laughs> a credit. And if you look at the back of page yes. 1040, you see those credits at the top that are non-refundable. Look to the left, 
refundable tax credits that are like the earned income, you make this refundable, we're changing lives because we're bringing lower to middle income, putting cash in their pocket for doing the right thing and building up this economy. It's got to be equitable. I love that. One more than magic wand moment on what would you advise? What would you change? What are you trying to get moving? Maybe even from a policy perspective. So we need these deconstruction ordinances at the local and the state level, and we need people to be working together. If you see the Milwaukee ordinance, and I don't know the, all the ins and outs, all I know is that it's deemed a failure. They apparently <laughs> tried to use Portland's model and put it in Milwaukee, never gained traction, didn't work. Um, each locality needs to look. We've lived in Milwaukee for 15 years. It is sadly one of the most segregated cities in the country, and having a reuse uh, area in the inner city where you have the, you know, Ozaki, Waukesha people won't even come in there to buy things. Um, but then you have great people. There's a gentleman there, Jody, that works with Habitat. He's getting those materials and getting them reused and is having, you know, great success. So we've got to have, we've got to have all of these organizations working in tandem, not just for the good of the earth. This is for the good of everyone's bottom line. This is a huge untapped resource. And I think that's my my bottom line to all of this is make money doing the right thing, but do it right. Understand the tax code and you work with nerds like me and there's a whole bunch of us that study the tax policy behind this. Work with us to get these state deconstruction ordinances in place, make them feasible. Um, the Hennepin County in Minnesota has a grant for deconstruction, cash. Fantastic. I met with another entrepreneur who considered, was trying to push Cook County, Chicago, which that very high property taxes. Um, look at having a potential reduction in property taxes by donating for deconstruction. Look at that. I mean, that speaks to the pocketbook when you're in the upper north, uh, upper Midwest with uh, the property taxes. There's so many avenues to do this. We have to do it speaking to the wallet because i mean you look at any election you look at anything yep. people are voting on what's what's in their financials and we have a especially a middle class and a non-emerging lower to middle class with no mobility right now due to way beyond what this webinar is we make this a refundable tax credit this could this could potentially change lives build the yep. market move the price points up and then again, before I die, which is planned for, I'll be 97. I've already planned this out. Okay, I mean, good. It'll, it'll Way be, far ahead. Yeah, April 15th. I'm going to make sure the returns are all accepted. Press send. Say goodbye to the five kids and the husband. And then we're going to have this as a tax credit. And then I'm going to click order on an equivalent of a Home Depot for a 10-story corporate structure that can be fully sourced, reclaimed, and it will be there next week. That's what's going to happen before I die. <laughs> I love that additional dying wish. Um, uh, thank you so much. I think we did an excellent job diving deep into the details, bringing us back up into, again, more topical relevance too and anecdotal stories. So thank you for bringing us yeah. there. Um, I look so forward to hearing you speak next or even having you as a return guest in the future. I think we already planned for 2033, if I'm not mistaken, where we can yeah. then talk about all the good work we've done in the deconstruction industry. Uh, thank you, and Jessica. I'll put you for... on my my dying schedule when I'm 97. We'll do that perfect, April 4th. Perfect. So, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And we can review okay. that then. Um, yeah. Excellent, Jessica. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay. I'll talk to you soon.